Well, thank you, choir. I got a question for you this morning before we dig into Scripture. How many of you have ever been denied something at any point in your life? Let me see your hands. All right. I had a sneaky suspicion. That'd be most everybody. You know, it starts really whenever we're young, uh, being denied, being told no. And chances are the first time you were denied and told no, it didn't go over so well. It's probably in a, in a, you know, in a grocery store or in some little convenience store. And for some strange reason, you know, the candy was just placed right at your eye level as a little three-year-old, and you asked, Mom, can I have some candy? And the answer was, no. See, you had much, much kinder, gentler parents maybe than I did. It was, no, because I'd already asked, you know, like for the first three years of my life up to that point. We, we, we get accustomed to being denied early in life. Then we get older, and it expands a little bit. And you're kind of the, you know, you're in, you're in high school, and you, you, know, you make the phone call, and you ask the girl out, and she says, no, right? And sometimes it's kind of the same thing, no. <laughs> sometimes she just doesn't answer for for years, and then you just sort of realize the answer was, uh, was no. Or maybe you're, you're the girl, right, and you're wanting some guy to ask you out, and, and it's sort of like a passive denial. It's a passive no. Then you get older, and, uh, and then you're, you know, you're wanting to buy a house, and you talk to the uh, bank, and the bank reviews your information, and they say no, or you're trying to get a job, and you submit an application, and the answer comes back no, or you sit down for an interview, and the person looks across the desk and says your resume looks great, but the answer is no, and, and we all get accustomed to being denied, don't we? I mean, we've all been there. How many of you have ever been denied, and then later you realized that uh, when you saw the big picture that, that that denial was really a good thing? Huh? How many of you ever had that happen, right? Probably the same number of hands up in the air. In other words, you know, the guy that, or the girl that you asked out and she said no, like about 12 years later, you're like, thank you, God, that she <laughs> did not say yes. Yeah. Or maybe you're the girl, you're like, oh, I'm so glad that guy never called me because I would have gone out with him and we would have got married and then it would have just all been downhill from there. And, and, or maybe the boss, you know, the, the job that turned you down, you, your friend gets the job and they tell you about the boss and it's just this nightmare and, and you're grateful at times that once you see the big picture, you're really glad that there are times we get denied because the big picture is what makes the difference. Now, here's the difficulty for us is that we as people have a hard time sometimes, most times, seeing the big picture because we get in the way of the big picture. We live lives that are very um, me-centered, don't we? Very, very me-focused. We focus on ourselves. You've heard me mention this before, that we just have a tendency, and it's not because God wired us that way. It's just that we're selfish people. We're prideful people. And because of sin, because of the fall, we have a tendency to look out really for number one. And for a lot, number one is ourselves. You you look at, for example, you look at Facebook, right? A lot of you are on Facebook. And uh, when you look at Facebook, remember when Facebook first started? I don't remember if it's this way now. But remember when it first started, the status updates were very, people really abided by them. And the the first little phrase was, I am. I think that's how it started, right? And then you'd fill it in. And it was all kind of crazy stuff. Like, I am brushing my teeth for work, you know, and that was people's status updates. Do you remember that? Do you are, are you with me? You remember that? Some of you, you just actually updated your status update with something like that. I am getting ready for work. I am going for work, which is truly scary because they probably were actually updating their status on the way to work. And it became this big blown up Facebook version of me. And here's me. And, and it's like social media is the right word for that. And it just kind of exposes our tendency to look to ourselves first. And when we look to ourselves first, what happens is we miss the big picture. And what happens is that we move through life and we only see our lives for how life and circumstance benefits ourselves. And we miss the bigger picture of what God may be up to. 
Here's what I want to do this morning. We're shifting gears a little bit. We've been in 1 Corinthians for a while. I had planned to go into the next chapter, chapter 12, but as I was preparing this, this, uh, this week, rather than jumping into a brand new section in 1 Corinthians, which is where we'll be, uh, and because we're starting a brand new series for a few weeks next Sunday on Easter, a series entitled Leverage, and I hope you'll be here and bring a lot of people with you, I thought that today would be, uh, I just felt, I felt compelled to, to preach a message out of a very specific passage of Scripture where a person we're going to read about in a real slice out of history was denied, and he was denied for a reason, and that reason was because of the bigger picture, that he didn't see at first, but that Jesus himself was fully convinced was there. And so I want to give you just a little simple principle, and we're going to begin to unpack it today as we move through Mark chapter 5. And so jot down this, this simple principle. I hope you'll jot it down. It's so important uh, to everything we're going to look at this morning. And the principle is this, that your salvation, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, your salvation was given to you for more than just yourself. Now, when I talk about being a Christian, when I talk about salvation, here's, here, here's what, we, what we have in mind. Salvation meaning, not that I've gone to church, because if going to church made us right with God, then everybody would be in church every day, right? It's more than that. When I talk about salvation, it's coming to that place in our lives where we realize that we are bankrupt before God. God is perfect. God is holy. We're not. We've sinned. We've got a lot of stuff as evidence to point to if we wanted to. But we realize that our sin has broken our relationship with God. God loves us. God doesn't want us to stay in sin, and so what he did was he sent a substitute for us. His name is Jesus, fully God, fully man, walked this earth in perfection, and when he gave his life on the cross, we're going to celebrate that next Sunday, that when he died on the cross and when he rose again, he paid that total cost for you to be right with God. And so when I talk about salvation, what I'm talking about is not being in church, not living a good life. I'm talking about we come to the place where we decide, you know what, I don't want sin in my life anymore. I'm going to turn from it, and as I turn from it, I'm going to turn to Jesus. I'm going to surrender to him. I'm going to invite him in to forgive me, take over my whole entire life. He's going to be my savior. He's going to save me from sin. He's going to be my Lord. He's going to be my master. And I want to follow him from this day on. So when we talk about salvation, for all of those in this building that have done that, you've responded to Christ that way and surrender. Understand that your salvation was given to you for more than just yourself. See, we, we often look at our salvation as a priceless treasure, and rightly so, but a priceless treasure only for ourselves. And so we, it's like we have it in its box, we open that box up on Sunday mornings, then we put it sometimes back on the shelf. Then whenever we're feeling fearful or we're struggling, we take the box down, we take off the top, oh yeah, there's my salvation, I feel so good about my relationship with God. We put the top back on, we feel better, put it back on the shelf. What we often do with our salvation as Christians is we treat it as though it's only for ourselves. It's our comfort. It's our hope. It's our joy. It's our treasure. It's our priceless uh, blessing that God has given us. And again, rightly so. But we miss the big picture that the reason God has saved you as a Christian, the reason he's forgiven you, the reason he's made you right with himself and granted you salvation is not only for yourself, but it's also ultimately for other people around you as well. And so that's what we're going to see this morning in Mark chapter 5. And the title of the message this morning is Stay and Go. It's kind of a paradox. I know it's a little bit confusing. I think you'll understand it by the time we're done. Stay and go. Mark chapter 5. Mark is one of the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Scripture tells us elsewhere when we start piecing together the, the pieces that Mark was born into a fairly wealthy family. He uh, would cross paths with the apostle Paul, Paul who would write most of the New Testament. Uh, uh, Mark 
maybe in your translation he's called John Mark, but Mark would be on one of the journeys that Paul would go on, one of his three missionary journeys. He was on the first, actually. Well, midway through that, through that missionary journey, uh, Mark would decide to cut and run. He, he was done. The Bible doesn't tell us why, but midway through that journey, he, uh, you know, he left and he abandoned, he abandoned Paul. Well, the next journey that came along, uh, Paul didn't want him to go on the trip. And uh, it was so, so, so divisive that ultimately, I mean, there was a rift in Paul's life as a result of it, and it would get patched up later on. But uh, Mark was one who loved the Lord. He, he followed God. He was a part of you know, Paul's missionary journey. Uh, he was one that God would ultimately use to write one of the letters, one of the books in the New Testament. Mark was an interesting figure. And what we find here is in the gospel that he would write, we see a little snapshot out of Jesus' ministry, and it's a very dramatic snapshot. And what that snapshot pictures for us is that our salvation is given to us for more than just ourself. And so here's what I want to do. I want to jump in in the first verse of Mark chapter 5. We're going to move our way through that. The backdrop is going to be that simple principle that your salvation is also for others. Doesn't mean they get to heaven because of you, but it was given for the benefit of others as well. And we're going to see that as we move through. So let's jump in. Mark chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, I'll explain as we go. It says, they came to the other side of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, into the country of the Gerasenes. Now, this was a region that was heavily populated by Gentiles. There wasn't a large Jewish population here. That might not mean a lot to you necessarily, but it is significant because most of the people in this area were not of a Jewish heritage. So Jesus, the they there is Jesus and his disciples. They're sailing across the Sea of Galilee. They land here in this region uh, uh, that was heavily populated by Gentiles. Now, there was a city there named Gersa. That's why it's called the, the, the Gerasenes. And then there was also a larger city that was kind of over that whole jurisdiction called Gadara. And so depending on your translation, it may be called the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes. So it's not a contradiction. It's just speaking of that same area. So Jesus is sailing with his disciples. They cross the Sea of Galilee. They're on the eastern shore. They're in this region called the country of the Gerasenes, verses 2 through 5. And they encounter someone here that, that uh, man, the disciples just didn't see coming. It says, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs, with an unclean spirit, met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. That meant his neighborhood was the cemetery. That's where he lived. Uh, It says, And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. All right, so that's the picture that Jesus uh, encounters, he and his disciples, when their boat lands and they're on the other shore. Now, it speaks of this man who was uh, indwelled by evil spirits. Now, some of you, depending on kind of your background and how you were raised, at least in a church setting, you have different views of this. For some of you, you know, you take the whole devil and demons and all that, and you just kind of pack it up and you kick it to the curb, you marginalize it, you don't believe in it. For others of you, uh, you, you're on the other end of the spectrum. Everything you see in life is kind of sifted through the lens of the devil and demons and all these things. Well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible teaches of the reality of Satan. It speaks of the, he's not mythological, real figure, Uh, The Bible speaks of the reality of demons, fallen angels. The Old Testament unpacks how that came to be. Uh, So they are not treated mythologically. They are real, uh, uh, genuine uh, beings. The Bible goes into some clarity with that. And so what Jesus encounters here is a man who is indwelt by evil spirits. Now, again, understand this. For the believer, 
for the Christian, the one who has given their lives to Christ, it is impossible for a Christian to be indwelt by an evil spirit. Why? Because when you give your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit takes residence in you, and he ain't letting nothing else in, all right? So greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. It is possible, however, and we see this in the world we live in, even for believers to be ultimately influenced by evil. We see that all the time. We see that in the world we live in. It's so impossible for a Christian to be indwelt by an evil spirit. However, it is possible for all of us, regardless of our relationship with God, to be ultimately influenced by evil and by evil spirits as well. So Jesus encounters this man. He does not know God. He is indwelt by evil spirits. Uh, it is not a pretty sight. This man is probably, if you read this passage literally, as we should, because it really happened, this man is probably covered in blood because he cuts himself consistently with stones. He harms himself. He endangers himself. He cannot be bound by any other person. He's probably in his body covered with scabs and different places on his body that are in various stages of healing. It is not a pretty sight. This man is completely out of control. He uh, comes running and screaming at Jesus and the disciples as they land on the shore there. And uh, it's, the disciples, were they were not expecting this more than likely. Jesus understood fully what was taking place. So we move on to verse 6. It says, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up, this man, and he bowed down before him. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really interesting that he does that. It says, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God. Now, this man, in the condition in which he found himself, and these demons that inhabited him, understood who Jesus was. They understood him to be God. And when they refer to him as Jesus, Son of the Most High God, that is a reference to his deity. That Jesus is not some ordinary man here. He is 100% man, but yes, also 100% God walking this earth. And they recognize this, and they say, I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And so this is an exchange that is taking place. Of this man, Matthew tells us there were two of them. Mark just simply focuses on one of them, this particular person. And we see this scene as it begins to unfold. That Jesus is recognized as God himself, both by this man and the demons that inhabit him. Look at verse 9. It goes on. Next slide. It says, and he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to Jesus, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion is significant because a Roman army, uh, again, this, this area where this man lived was a Gentile area. It wasn't Jewish in population. It was uh, that particular area in the first century was under somewhat of a Greek influence uh, under Roman rule. And so a legion would have been a, a detachment of soldiers under the Roman army in the first century. It could have as many as 6,000 soldiers in that detachment. It was called a legion. It doesn't mean this man was indwelt by 6,000 specifically, uh, but he says his name is Legion for we are many. And he began to implore or beg Jesus earnestly not to send them, the demons, out of the country. Now, this is a phenomenal scene that is unfolding here. Phenomenal exchange that is taking place here. Move on to verse 11. It says, Now there was a large herd of swine, feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored Jesus, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Again, they are under the authority of Christ. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. This is the absolute first place in Scripture where we ever see any evidence, the only place where we ever see any evidence of suicide. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was weak. 
you're thinking, I'm glad you broke that one out the Sunday before Easter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay. So, so these pigs, and again, it all happens just like this. These pigs, Jesus shows his authority. He can't, and we don't know why. Mark doesn't tell us. Matthew, Luke, they don't tell us why Jesus did this. I, I'm assuming, uh, this is just an assumption, that perhaps it was a foreshadowing of the ultimate destination for Satan and his demons. Because if you read the book all the way through, and you get through Revelation, especially you find in chapter 20 that the time will come when God shows his authority, he shows his supremacy, and he casts the enemy himself and all the demons as well into the lake of fire. And so in a sense, possibly, this is a bit of a foreshadowing of this. Jesus is exerting his authority as deity, as God. He is deciding what's going to happen here. Doesn't tell us much more beyond that. But he chooses, in this instance, to cast the swine, the, uh, the, the demons into the swine to give them permission to dwell the swine. 2,000 of them. Mark gives us a literal number. Shows the magnitude of what's taking place here. 2,000 of these pigs, of these swine, ultimately run over the steep bank and they drown in the sea. Now, here's the thing to understand, is that as this unfolds, what's going to be the response of those who hear about it? Look at what it says in verse 14. It says, their herdsmen, the, the, the herdsmen that took care of these pigs, their herdsmen ran away, and they reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, and he was in a, in a suit with a tie, and his hair was combed, and he was reading the Wall Street Journal, and he was clothed and in his right mind. Okay, you get the picture? And this man is not the same as he was before he met Christ. Jesus has done something in him that only God could do. He had tried to help himself, no doubt. He could not help himself. The people that knew him had tried to bind him and had tried to do something in him that only God could accomplish. Jesus shows up, does what only God can accomplish. Why? Because Jesus is God. And ultimately, all of the whole townspeople come and they see Jesus and they see sitting right there next to him, exhibit A of what Christ can do when someone yields their life to him. And they see this man who had once been demon-possessed sitting down, he's clothed, he's in his right mind. It was the very man, they said, who had the legion and the result was not oh jesus will you come to my house because i can get i can use some of that oh not jesus can you come and spend a little maybe an afternoon with me because i got stuff going on in my life that i'd really like you to help me with that was not the response it says they became frightened i mean i mean are you serious I mean, they just saw this man they all knew him and his whole life has changed and they're afraid going to the next verse verse 16 it says, those who had seen it described to them how it had happened. Uh, the ones that were there said, this is what Jesus said. This is what they said. This is what happened. And they lay it all out. They told exactly how it happened uh, of what he did for the demon-possessed man, all about the swine, verse 17. And they began to implore him. They begged Jesus to leave their region. I mean, hit the road. Why? Let, let me tell you why I think. Because for a significant number of these townspeople, especially the owner of these pigs, that was their money over the cliff, drowned in the sea. It's their income. Jesus, you just, you just ruined my livelihood. Thank you very much. For a lot of those townspeople there, that was their next meal. This wasn't a Jewish area. Those weren't going to be offered as sacrifice. They, 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 this was not considered unclean. This was a Gentile region. This was their next meal right over the side of the cliff. Thanks a lot, Jesus. Appreciate it. No room for you here. It's time to hit the road. And in the, on the very heels of an encounter where Jesus did what only God can do in a person's life, all they could see is me. And there is no room for you, Jesus, 
with me. And it's time to go. Verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, interesting, by the way, you've heard it said that God doesn't force himself into the life of anyone, right? He will answer the invitation to come and take over your life at any point. These men told him to leave, and Jesus left. (laughs) As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him, begging him that he might accompany him. That's a no-brainer, isn't it? But what if this was you? You know? I mean, what, what if this, just think for a second, what if this was you? You had lost your family. You had lost your job after job after job. You had lost everything you had. You're living in a cemetery, for crying out loud. And no one can help you. And suddenly, this man you've never met, Jesus, steps out of a boat onto a shore into your life and sets you free. I mean, what are you going to say? You'll say, can I go? (laughs) Can I just go wherever you go? I don't care where it is, Lord. But wherever you go, can I just go with you? And he begs Jesus, have you got room for one more in that boat? Because I'll follow you anywhere. Verse 19. And he did not let him. (laughs) Denied. You ever been denied? No. Didn't let him. You know, I read this and I think Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. Eleven of those guys are good. One of them is soon going to betray him with a kiss and basically turn him over to those that will crucify him. This guy's a great replacement for Judas, right? (laughs) Jesus knew all this. I mean, why don't you just leave Judas on the shore, let him live in the cemetery for goodness sakes, and take this guy on. He'll be disciple number 12. Hey, we'll have a great ending to the Bible, right, to the Gospels. No, Jesus says he didn't let him. But he said to him, go home. Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. In other words, no, this boat is not for you. And right here physically by my side is not where you need to be. I want you to stay, and I want you to go. Verse 20, and he went away, and he began to proclaim in Decapolis. You recognize, maybe not the city of Decapolis, but Deca. You know, we have in the Olympics the Decathlon, right? Ten, it's ten events, Deca, ten. This region, the Decapolis, was actually not a city. It was a region of ten cities, it says he went away and he began to proclaim in Decapolis, this region of ten cities, what great things Jesus had done for him. And here's the result. This man who had once been unable to help himself, unable to be helped by anyone else, who meets Jesus seemingly at random, and yet Jesus came right where he was by design. He meets Jesus. He is ultimately set free in a way that he had never experienced before. He is given a new heart and a new mind. I believe he is saved at that moment. He now has a relationship with God. Jesus tells him, no, you can't go with me. You need to stay here. But as you stay, you are going to go to the people that I've surrounded you with, and as he begins to share of all the things that God had done for him, the result was that everyone was amazed. In other words, his salvation was given to him, not just for himself, so that he could go home to a family, and home to a house, and home to a job, and that he could experience all the great things that God had done. And whenever he felt good or bad, he could think back on what Jesus had done and have all warm, fuzzy feelings in his heart and think, oh, my salvation is so good. I'm so glad that God saved me. For me, I've benefited so greatly. That was just a part of it. Jesus said, no, I have saved you for more than just yourself. I want you to stay where I planted you, and yet I want you to go to everybody in that region. And as he did, 
they were amazed. And who knows how many thousands came to know God because of the impact of this one man who never got over what Jesus did in his life. And we look at ourselves as Christians and we see our salvation for our own comfort. We see our salvation as solely for our own insurance, that I won't go to hell, I'll go to heaven. And we see our own salvation as merely something that is just a blessing for me. And we miss the big picture that perhaps God has saved you, not just for you, but for the benefit of people around you. What if, Christian, think about this for a second if you're not asleep yet, think about this for just a moment. What if God saved you so that you might be his strategy number one, to ultimately lead those closest to you to a relationship with him as well? What if you are his first strategy to see the place where you work impacted with the gospel, impacted with the reality of what God does with a life that's yielded fully to Jesus Christ? What if God put you on your street, not just because you got a a good deal on a nice two-story four-bedroom house? What if God put you on your street for the sole purpose of seeing your salvation ultimately impact everybody else on your street, everybody else in your cul-de-sac, everybody else in your neighborhood, when they hear the blessings that God has given you and the joy of what he's done in your life when he set you free, what if he gave you to that street and to those neighbors as exhibit A so that they might be impacted by your salvation and know him as you know him as well? What if? What if you're on your campus for that reason? What if you're in the family you are for that reason? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? The list goes on and on and on. But if your salvation is only for you, there comes a place where you become so me-centered, even as a believer, that you, you miss the big picture. And you lay your head down at night, and you thank God that he saved you, and you thank God that he forgave you, and yet you miss the whole big picture. <laughs> that Jesus also sends you to the shore of another hurting, broken, lost people so that you don't become a preacher, you don't become Billy Graham, you just be you, fully, 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 totally immersed in Christ so that others might see Christ through you. Because your salvation was given ultimately for more than just yourself. So here we are a week from Easter. Three services next Easter Sunday, if I remember correctly, I don't remember for sure. I think we had over 1,200 last Easter weekend. Saturday night, two Sunday mornings. There'll be a lot of people we expect coming. There'll be more if you invite them. (laughs) That's just sort of the way it is. A lot of people deciding where to go to church next Sunday. Some will go where the gospel is not proclaimed. Others will go where the gospel is proclaimed. This will be one of those places. I think one of the applications here, very simply is if my salvation was given to me for more than just myself, and if next Sunday is the biggest day of the year where people who don't know God are going to be willingly going to church, then what can I do to step into their life? People that will never listen to Brooks because when they hear what I do and where I work, they'll kick me to the curb faster than you can blink. But they'll listen to you because you've got influence. You've earned a voice in their life. How many of those people will you say, hey, would you, would you meet me? at my church next weekend. That's a great application, this message. But Easter weekend will pass, and Easter weekend will be done, and you'll still have broken, hurting, lost neighbors and friends and coworkers and family members. And I think the bigger blown-up version of this is that God then wants us not to just invite to a service, but to also invest 
our lives and those around us so that the people in your workplace and the people on your campus and the people in your family and the people on your street and the people in the random places where you tend to go, that maybe God wants you to invest as a believer whose salvation belongs to more than just you. Maybe he wants you to begin to invest and actually build relationships with people who need a Savior just like you do. Have you ever met the Jesus that I just read about? Have you ever met that Jesus that meets people where they are, sets them free? Have you ever met him? Hey, if you haven't, you can meet him today. And you don't have to give a certain amount of money in an offering. You don't have to give an offering at all. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to get good enough or any better. And what you do have to do is to recognize who he is, that he's God. And recognize who you are, that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness, just as all of us are. And what you do need to do is not only recognize, but then respond. That as you lay down your sin and you turn from it, it doesn't mean you'll be perfect from this day forward. But that you don't want your sin to characterize you anymore. That you set it down and you turn. And as you turn, you turn to Jesus. And you surrender your life to Jesus. And, and, and you, you adopt a mindset similar to this. Lord Jesus, I know that I need you. And I need your forgiveness. And the best that I can today, I turn from my sin. And I invite you as God to step into my life to forgive me and take over. It's not getting the words just right that matters most. It's the attitude of our heart. And what God's looking for is that surrender. And if you don't know Jesus, right where you sit today, you can invite him in to forgive you and take over. And if you've already done that, you do know him. He doesn't want to be in a box on a shelf in your life. He didn't come for you to take him out when you're ready. He came to take over. And what he wants to do is to use your life as a platform to make himself great so that everywhere you go and everybody you meet, the way you do business, the way you conduct yourself on the weekends, the way you treat other people, the way you raise your families, the way you treat your friends, the way you spend, all those things reflect, oh, I'm perfect and I'm better than everybody else. It doesn't reflect that. It reflects that I'm just an ordinary person in process as God continues to do his amazing work in my life. Hey, people will see that and take note. God will get glory. And who knows who can be reached when you understand that your salvation is not just for you, but for others as well. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. You know, I, I look out across a crowd like this, two of our services today, God, and you know, I'm just reminded again of the of the diversity and the variety of the people who are here on any given Sunday. And there are some that were raised in church. Lord, and everything they've heard me say today, there, there's nothing they haven't heard before. They know who you are, and their walk with you is a deep walk. And life is not perfect. No, it has difficulties that come, but they know you, and they've seen you at work for a long time. And then there are others who are here that are, are brand new to that walk, and they're just beginning to learn, and they're getting their feet under you. They've, they've yielded their life to Christ, but they've just begun to grow. And then there are yet others this is maybe one of the first times they've ever heard anything really from your word. They've never really heard much about Jesus, maybe just in the context of bad language or some poor movie on TV they saw that doesn't even line up with what your word tells us. There is really not a lot to go on there. This may be for some the first time they've ever really heard a message like this, that, that Jesus, God himself, he, he loves us. 
and that he came to set us free and that he still does that work in people's lives today. And Lord, there are people here today, it may not be the specifics of what we read of in Mark 5, but there are people here that are in bondage. God, their lives are bitter and they are angry and they may be in, in some addiction. They, they may be looking for value and worth in all the places that are just leaving them with more and more baggage. And God, their life is just a, it's just a shambles and they've, they've looked for peace and they've looked for, for joy and they've looked for life, but there's still something that is just not yet right there. And yet today they've heard maybe for the first time that, that there is a God, a God who loves them deeply and a God who came to set them free through Christ. And Lord, that is good news. It's good news for everyone. And so God, for those that don't know you today, give them the courage to place their faith in Jesus right where they sit. It wouldn't be just a little prayer that means nothing, but Lord, they would really be a surrender of their life to Jesus Christ today. And Lord, for those of us who've done that, God, I pray that you just set us, set us aflame, God, with a heart for you that wants to not just check a box from time to time, that we don't want to just kind of coast into heaven Lord, we want to we bring as many as we can with us. We want our lives to stand for something. We want to get more than just a pay raise or a bonus or a slap on the back from a boss. We want more than just raising good kids. We want something better than just more stuff. God, we want to know our lives made a difference in a way that lasts forever. And so God, help us to understand the, the big picture that you saved us, yes, for us, but also for others. And may we commit to that today. So bless our decisions. Lord, use this next time we ask in any way you desire. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.